Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're going to be looking beyond COVID, beyond Brexit, and asking where is the long-term opposition to Boris Johnson's government really going to come from? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. At some point, we will know the shape of a Brexit deal or no deal, but I've sort of given up waiting for that. It'll come. So in the meantime, I'm delighted we've got Helen Thompson with us, and it's a pleasure to welcome back Chris Brooke. We haven't really focused on British politics for a while. Um, There's so much going on. So let's try and think about next year and beyond if we can. Chris, could we start maybe something that we really haven't talked about on this podcast for ages? It feels like that we used to talk about it obsessively all the time which is Corbynism. So if we sort of start on the thinking about the oppositional space to the government, start on the left and maybe work towards the right, if that makes sense. Where do you think the the sort of energy, the impetus behind Corbynism is at the moment in British politics, if it's anywhere? Is it? Can you see a pathway for it back to really making a difference over the next few years? I think energy levels are very low. There's a lot of Corbynist presence on Twitter, uh, but that seems to be the kind of Twitter bubble that doesn't have a great deal of resonance outside. Corbynism is also in, embedded in a set of institutions. When it comes to the media, there's uh, Tribune magazine, there's The Canary, there's Navarra Media, and so on. These are all pretty fringe presences. The Canary, as ever, divides opinion pretty sharply, including on the left. And I think quite a bit of the energy of people attached to the Corbyn project is to try to keep these uh, institutions going, keep their toeholds where they've got them. They're increasingly on the retreat in the formal institutions of the Labour Party, in particular in the recent NEC elections. They didn't do disastrously, but they certainly have nothing like the grip on the NEC that they used to have. And then there's a complicated politics of the trade unions where Some unions in particular, Unite, have been more friendly to Corbynism, and we'll see how that plays out. But I think the energy did very rapidly go out of the movement. The scale of the electoral defeat a year ago was pretty shocking. The recent book by Owen Jones, for example, very much presents Corbynism as a project that failed. So there's a lot of taking stock to do. And I think much of the practical politics for the foreseeable future will be defensive, trying to hold on to what they've still got, amidst an ongoing argument about whether the energies are best devoted to trying to wrest the Labour Party back towards something like a Corbynist posture in in various aspects, or whether they're best off leaving the Labour Party and doing something else. 
neither strategy looks especially promising. And that's why the argument will go on for quite a while. And it was often said of the people who were behind the Corbyn project that at its heart were a set of policies, or at least proposals, maybe even just a kind of outlook on politics, that was popular and popular with mainstream opinion. So polling around questions like nationalisation and so on suggested relatively high readiness on the part of the British public to accept what might be thought of as as left policies. And then the problem was it wasn't electorally successful, and that may have had something to do with Corbyn himself. Is there any sense that if you think two, three years ahead, that this is a movement, you know, the phrase that was always used, Corbynism without Corbyn, and Corbyn himself does seem like someone who has not got much left to offer British politics, I think it's fair to say that. Corbynism without Corbyn, does that have any kind of meaningful purchase on Labour politics over over the cycle of this parliament? I mean, it needs, apart from anything else, it would need some kind of leader. I don't know who that would be. But those policies, or do they just have to somehow be channeled back into the, the current Starmer leadership? I think it, it has to be the latter approach. And this is the mantle that Starmer bid for when he ran for leader, that the... the um, the propaganda videos he put out were uh, full of emphasising his commitment to um, a long history of, of left campaigns, and he didn't announce any substantial break with the Labour manifestos of 2017 or 2019. And those manifestos, broadly speaking, were popular inside the Labour Party, and reasonably popular among the public. The difficulty the Labour Party has faced for a decade now is how to move out of the shadow of new Labour. And Miliband tried in a somewhat timid way and failed. Corbyn tried in a more drastic way. And and I think time had passed, so it was easier. He had more success uh, from that point of view than Miliband did. And that's the inheritance that Starmer has, a party that's now firmly outside the new Labour mainstream. That's the anxiety of the Corbyn supporters, is that Starmer wants to turn the Labour Party back into something like a political party on the model of new Labour. There's not much evidence that that's his plan. The Labour Party does seem to me to have a reasonably comfortable existence as a social democratic party in the European mould, offering a programme based on something like the manifestos of the last two general elections. Obviously, there are some difficult policy questions around the edges, but I expect the policy offer at the next election to be broadly continuous with what it's been at the last two uh, elections. Maybe there won't be such an emphasis on the green industrial revolution. Maybe there won't be such an emphasis on the abolition of... uh, tuition fees for students. But um, it's going to look something like what those manifestos have looked like, uh, because that's popular with the party. And there's no particular reason to think it's unpopular with the public. And do do you think that there's a role for left opposition to Johnson's government that is recognisably similar to the kind of left opposition there was to, say, Theresa May's government? Or do you think we are genuinely in a different post-Corbyn phase? I think that it's... um... It's a complicated um, question because of the complex relationship, as we've talked a lot about before, between Corbyn and the Corbynism project. So I think you know, if you make you know like comparisons with the past, there was a more genuine social base, let's call it that, to the shift to the left in the Labour Party from 2015 than there was to the shift to the left in the Labour Party in the in the 1980s. 
And, you know, if you wanted to sort of say, well, what was the social base of Corbynism? I think, it, you know, it was graduate millennials to a, you know, a considerable extent. Plus, that version of the Labour Party showed that it was quite successful at mobilising minority voters in, in urban areas. And I think that the Labour Party cannot go back to the position that Blair tried to you know, occupy um, for it, and indeed for a while obviously occupied um, pretty successfully. In some sense, socially, that, that Britain doesn't exist and in the same way, and that's before we even get on to the question about what Labour is going to do about Scotland. So I don't see that Starmer can go back to trying to fight the wars, if you like, of the Labour Party of the 1990s. Again, he's got to position himself somewhere differently in the left, I think, is is different and in some sense structurally stronger than it was at that time. I think the difficulty for Labour, again, leaving the Scotland issue aside for the moment, is that the whole set of cultural issues that have become more important uh, in politics over the last, however long we want to say, certainly over the last um, decade, um, perhaps um, longer, get in the way of Labour making straightforward economic appeals, whether that is a Starmer version of that or the kind of appeal that Corbyn tried to make in the 2017-2019 general election. I think that the the cultural issues have created a a set of voters who find it difficult to vote for Labour, come what may really, regardless of what the, the economic position is. And then one question for the left that wants to be to the left of, of Starmer is, I think, is are they willing to make any compromises on cultural issues or do they want to say this is a ground on which we're going to um, stand and that the their economic radicalism and their cultural radicalism go together? So I think that you know, there is a space for the left to critique what is likely to be the fairly, I would say, growing consensus post-Brexit between what will come from the Conservatives under Johnson, certainly after the in the context of post-pandemic as well as post-Brexit, and what will come from Starmer. But I, I think that there's a deep set of difficulties of like mobilising sufficient support for that to think that it can capture the Labour Party again. One of the ironies of the whole Corbynism without Corbyn idea is that you know the reason we call it Corbynism is because for a brief moment that version of politics had an absolutely clear figurehead and leadership does matter. And it was one of those rare moments in British political history where, I mean, to call it Corbynism is a bit odd anyway, because these weren't really his ideas in a way. And actually what people call Corbynism, I think, is quite distant from what Jeremy Corbyn himself came into politics to do, because that has such an emphasis on international politics. But the fact that it got a name and it got a figurehead is what gave it a very, very different kind of visibility. And absent that, and I I can't see, unless one of you can tell me, I can't see who would lead or who would be a a figurehead, a spokesperson for the left critique of the sort of, if it's going to be this, a kind of Starmer-Johnson consensus about some things. Who is going to speak for that? I can't see that person. Can you? I, I think that's one of the remarkable things about Corbynism is that it hasn't really created a generational turnover in the Labour Party. It hasn't uh, created a new generation of leaders on the left. Corbyn's closest lieutenants were people like Diane Abbott and John MacDonald, who've bowed out of frontline politics at around the same time. There was optimism at various times that someone like Angela Rayner or someone like Rebecca Long-Bailey would rise to the occasion and take on the mantle. But 
Ron Bailey's candidacy for party leader wasn't especially popular, and Angela Rayner is now firmly identified with the new leadership of the party. And beyond that, when people look around for names, there are figures like Laura Pidcock, who crashed and burned, she lost her seat at the general election, or people look, looking at some of the more idiosyncratic figures, people like Clive Lewis, who always had a, a difficult relation with the um, inner circle of Corbyn supporters. And so that's that's very striking, that it's not that there's a group of Corbynite politicians who would have senior posts in the shadow cabinet if the left still uh, led the party. It's actually hard to see where the parliamentary leadership of that faction is going to come from beyond figures like Ian Lavery, who are never going to have that much traction outside their um, current circles. So Chris, you you said that one of the things that might distinguish Starmer from Corbyn is a a softening maybe of the Green New Deal agenda. I think a, a sort of unspoken but really important feature of recent British politics is that the Conservative Party has, even with everything else going on, sent some strong signals about its version of a green politics. I mean, it's accelerating various proposals to get rid of gas boilers, get diesel and petrol cars off the road. It's kind of brought some dates forward for carbon neutrality, essentially. And that is, a you know, I, I personally think that climate politics and green politics are going to be increasingly central to democratic politics, including in this country, over the next decade and more. So that raises questions for the opposition to Johnson. And we'll talk about the opposition to the right in a moment. But for the Labour Party, I mean, in theory, this should be an opportunity. But is there a danger here, actually, that between Green New Deal on the one hand and the Johnson version of green politics on the other, there isn't actually a huge amount of room? I think that is something they will be worried about. I think there's a sense in Labour circles that the the Green New Deal, the Green Industrial Revolution, while an admirable set of policies that did give a certain kind of coherence to the manifesto uh, in 2019, didn't resonate especially well with voters, that there seems to be a receptiveness to social democracy in general, to an expanded role of the state, to increase public spending, to increase measures of uh, redistribution, but not specifically to the way that it was packaged at the last general election. And that's going to give Labour a lot to think about in terms of how it packages and presents its policies at the next election. The sign, I think, that they're going to take this seriously is that when Ed Miliband returned to the Shadow Cabinet, it was to go into the relevant Shadow Cabinet portfolio. And Miliband is obviously a a senior figure inside the Labour Party, and he will be sorting out what that policy offer is going to be. But I think that's right. It's it's difficult to occupy a space when Johnson is stealing the rhetoric of the Green Industrial Revolution, but not promising to do nearly as much as Labour were promising at the last election, uh, when the Green Party uh, is a, a sort of still a single issue party around environmental issues. It does create a difficulty in how Labour can position itself in a distinctive and electorally effective way. I wonder whether the Conservatives are happy to use the green rhetoric because keeping environmental issues on the table beyond their obvious salience anyway and their obvious importance anyway help to remind people that the Green Party is there and they might like to vote for it because a strong Green Party basically helps the Conservatives insofar as it makes it harder to unite the anti-Conservative vote in any number of 
crucial constituencies. Yeah, Helen, I was going to, that's exactly the question I was going to ask, which is we talked about this with Chris Bickerton and, and Lucia Rubinelli in relation to France, the possibility that the Green Party actually could replace the centre-left Social Democratic Party as the place where certain kinds of voters and issues go to the point where the Green Party could, if they could find the right candidate, could be a viable presidential party in France. It doesn't look like it in this country because of our electoral system, among other things. But after all, the Green Party and indeed the Liberal Democrats traditionally benefit from green issues rising up the agenda. Could they now? I mean, is, is this not actually an opportunity for other parties in this squeezed two-party system that we have to reassert themselves? I'm not really convinced by that, partly because I think going back to where the left goes, the more the radical left, the Corbyn project, of those, not Corbyn himself, obviously, I think it, you know, it will go into, part of it at least, is going to go in the direction of like climate activism. So like non-parliamentary, uh, non-parliamentary politics so not to the Green Party. Not to the Green Party. Why no, not? I, Why not to the Green Party? The Green Party is a is a in many ways it's quite a Corbynite party. Because I think there's a certain disillusionment within what parliamentary politics can offer, and and the fact that there isn't a base in the in the Labour Party that, that there, there was no the left never succeeded, as Chris was saying, in getting anywhere during this period from after 2015 in the parliamentary Labour Party itself beyond the actual leadership and the few people around um, Corbyn. So in that sense, once you combine the fact that there's no presence in the Parliamentary Labour Party with the fact that we have a, an electoral system that makes it you know, like very difficult for anybody but the two main parties plus the SNP in, in Scotland, then I think that looking at the, uh, the long-term or even the medium-term prospects, that the left is going to say this is not the way forward. And I think you can already see some evidence of that. And we can see the fact that climate, the issue of climate, encourages activism. Is it provides a possibility of direct action, direct oppositional politics, uh, in the way in which, say, industrial action did in the in the, in in the nineteen seventies um, for the um, for the left. I think the reason why, though, we shouldn't think in terms of well, are the Greens going to benefit as a party, whether this is in Britain or in other European countries, from the the shift towards climate politics is is that the main parties in quite a number of, of countries, again, not just in, in Britain, look like they are making a, a really significant change. Now, you, I, I mean, you can be sceptical, and I certainly am myself, about like how rapidly any energy transition is going to come about, any, any move away from fossil fuel energy, how quickly it can come about. But I don't think we should be in any doubt that over the course of the last couple of years, that incumbent governments, the Trump administration aside, are taking a pretty different attitude towards the climate issue than they were, say, three or four years ago. And I think you know it is pretty striking that in the middle of a, a pandemic that the Johnson government has shifted gears on the climate question. If you take what's going on in, you know, like France, Macron has now said that there's going to be you know, a referendum on putting climate change commitment to act in the face of climate change into the constitution. So I don't think that we can just think about present Green politics and say, well, the consequences in the past is, is that the Green, the Green Party can benefit from these developments. I think we're, into, we're already into something that's really quite different. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. To the other side of this, though, and I've, I've touched on this a few times on this podcast, and I think it is going to become an increasingly important question in British politics, which is where is the opposition to action on climate change going to come from and who's going to lead it? Because Nigel Farage, I think, remains a significant figure in British politics. One of the things that the Conservative Party does when it is most successful is it makes sure that there is no group to the right of the Conservative Party. So when it managed to co-op the Brexit Party, it triumphed. It's not going to happen over Brexit, I think. But over climate, it could. And Farage is indicating that this is the way he thinks that his kind of politics is going to go. If a Conservative government is telling people to take their gas boilers out of their homes or take their petrol cars off the road, whatever it is, there is a space in British politics, I'm sure, particularly if there looks like there's a Labour Conservative consensus around this, and it is going to require significant behavioural change, there are going to be costs, no question. It's definitely not going to be a costless set of policies. That seems to me that it does open up room on the right, if we call it the right, of the Conservative Party for another kind of politics too. And I suspect, my feeling is, you can disagree with me on this, that over even this parliament, that space in British politics is going to become much more visible. We haven't seen it at the moment because of the pandemic, because of Brexit, but when we're past Brexit, whatever that means, and when we're past the pandemic, whatever that means, if this government is really committed to even its very tame version of a transition to a greener form of transport, energy, everything else, that opens up the space to the right of the Conservative Party and someone or something is going to occupy it. I'm sceptical that it's going to lead to a significant political challenge to the Conservative Party. I think Nigel Farage is too closely associated with the politics of Brexit, with uh, the European Union, the attempt to rebrand the Brexit Party as the Reform Party or whatever it's called now, looks like a pretty defensive move it's hard to see him having the clout that he's had in the absence of the kind of systemic crisis that Brexit has posed over the last few years. So I think he'll continue to make noise and attract attention, but it's hard to see an especially popular political movement emerging from those quarters. I think we're also seeing other figureheads appear on the right. I mean, the actor Lawrence Fox has now got his reclaim movement. And I think that's going to be the same kind of thing. Someone with a high media profile, attracting a lot of attention, getting some funding from the right, having the mail and the telegraph write obsessively about them, trying to big them up into substantial national figures. But it's hard to see that turning into an electoral operation that can function outside the Conservative Party. It takes a very long time to get new political parties going. That was true of the Greens, it was true of the Scottish Nationalists, it was true of UKIP, and it's later morphing into the Brexit Party. It doesn't look to me as if the conditions are in place for the emergence of a substantial party to the right of the Conservative Party. I think the Conservatives are very lucky from that point of view. So this may sound like a caricature, but 
my feeling of this is that there is a space in British politics for someone to channel, and this is just emblematic, the kind of anger that you hear a lot about, say, cycle lanes. I mean, it might sound ridiculous, but the sense that there is that new consensus emerging, which for many people seems to discriminate against a significant section of the population in favour of what's often perceived to be a minority. So let's just call it cyclists. And the fact that Farage has spotted this and is going to run in local elections on this issue seems to me, maybe I'm overstating it, but it seems to me that there is at least the beginnings of a gap opening up there. Helena, am I, am I completely... No, I, I agree with you. I agree. I, I mean, I think you can already see some of it going on in, in um, London around the politics of low traffic neighbourhoods and the issue with very considerable amount of car congestion around particularly in parts of West London that intersects with what's been going on with the bridges um, over the river. I think that there's a very considerable amount of anger amongst certain voters that can be exploited to the right of the Conservative Party over this, whether it's by Farage or somebody else. But I think where we'll first see it, and I think there is a parallel then with with UKIP, is that the discontent will manifest itself first in the Conservative Party itself, amongst Conservative backbenchers. And I think it will intersect with lockdown politics. Obviously, there's been quite a lot of anger on the Conservative um, backbenchers about some of the decisions that have been made about shutting down the economy and prioritising, protecting um, the health service in dealing with the pandemic. And a sense, I think, that the Johnson leadership perhaps wants to move the Conservative Party back to territory that actually was being occupied by David Cameron and that in some sense is shifting itself away from the coalition that um, won the Conservatives of 2019 election on the assumption, for the moment anyway, that there will be a trade agreement. I think that it's not difficult at all to see how you have the Conservatives being or the Conservative government being attacked from the right within the Conservative Party. And then if that there isn't a great deal of responsiveness from the leadership to that, that that leads to Farage thinking that there is a political opportunity for him. And I, I think, again, that the comparison, you know, like with France is quite important here because we could see going back to, you know, like 2018 with the beginning of the Gilets Jaunes movement, that it was the diesel tax issue that began that whole movement. And that the politics of distribution in relation to dealing with climate change is really is really fraught. And then there's the question of whether you can be competent in dealing with climate change, or put it more specifically, whether you can be competent around an energy transition, which is really an energy revolution, which is, inc- is going to be an incredibly difficult thing to achieve. And politicians are, you know, across Western democracies, are making promises about being carbon neutral by 2050, that right now they haven't got any real idea about how that they can achieve. And you can't have a politics of competence in the, in the face of that. So I think that we're going to see quite a lot of political discontent expressed in relation to climate politics. I mean, I wouldn't want to necessarily say right now what form that is going to take. It doesn't have to take um, the Gilets Jaunes form anywhere other than, than France. But I think that we... We have moved into a new political space and that climate is very much part of that. And it is worth remembering that 
all the things that people associate with Donald Trump and the way he got his candidacy going, birtherism and the wall and everything else, light bulbs were also part of it. I mean, he was early on someone who didn't like light bulbs that took too long to switch on. And that is part of that politics. It remains it. So I, I agree it's part of that politics, but I do think there's a tendency for people to be a bit too quick to read off what's been going on in the United States and think that it's playing out over here. So, for example, another issue is opposition to the coronavirus vaccine, that quite a few people seem to be worrying that anti-vax sentiment may be pretty widespread in this country and enough people won't take the vaccine to cause difficulties. I'm pretty sceptical that that's the case. I think that's a, a matter of people seeing what's going on in America and wondering whether it's happening here too. But I think by and large, people trust their GPs, they like the National Health Service, people will take the vaccine when it's offered to them. And that kind of anti-vax moment that people are speculating about will fizzle out. And I think something something like that may be the case with the kind of climate discontent that Helen has been describing, because it's going to play out over a long period, and it doesn't have an obvious focus or crisis point that green politics was able to get more prominent in the mainstream because of the European elections, the periodic European elections that meant that it was safe to vote green in a way that would make an impact in a way that it wouldn't normally in the first past the post system. The UKIP was able to engage politics on a big scale because of the referendum, because Cameron's rash decision to cause the referendum created a focal moment they could unite around. What's striking around uh, climate is it's not like that. It's profoundly important, it's extraordinarily important. But the politics of climate change and the responses to energy transition are going to be strung out over over decades. So it's going to be an issue of political management for the Conservative Party. And I absolutely agree that there's going to be a big fight in the Conservative Party between a, a national leadership that feels it ought to use the rhetoric of green industrial revolution and promoting an energy transition and fierce grassroots resistance across the Conservative Party. And we're seeing that playing out in the politics of cycle lanes in London boroughs at the moment. But absent that kind of focal point around which opposition can coalesce, I can't really see it finding a politically effective expression or a way that will cause real headaches for the Conservative Party. It'll be an issue to be managed. But Conservatives have often engaged with these issues where there's a a fight on the right-hand side of the political spectrum that plays out in the Conservative Party and the leadership has to respond to various competing pulls. That's what Conservative politicians do and that's what I think they'll continue to do with the um, politics of climate change. So, so finally, let's talk about something that we're going to talk about a lot more next year, but I just want to ask a very specific question about it now. So if we started this episode with the question, where is the opposition to Johnson's administration going to come from? At the moment, the most powerful opposition politician in the UK, I would say, is Nicola Sturgeon, and the most direct opposition is going to come from her. So that's where the most consequential elections are coming up, the Holyrood elections, and then one possible, and maybe even at the moment, likely consequence of that is an immediate, almost the next day, fight over Sturgeon's demand to have a second independence referendum. And that contest between Sturgeon and Johnson potentially is going to shape British politics over the the, the course of this parliament. But what should other opposition politicians do in relation to that fight? And not just Starmer. I mean, Starmer obviously has a choice to make, but we're also talking about people like Mark Drakeford in Wales, um, you know, other leaders of devolved 
assemblies. We're talking about the other parties, you know, the Greens, the Liberal Democrats. We're talking about Northern Irish politics. I mean, all sorts of people are going to have to position themselves in relation to this fight. And it's not clear how, how to do that. I mean, there are, there are opportunities, but presumably also pitfalls if the next three years or shorter term than that are dominated in part by a fight about the future of the union. So, Chris, maybe starting with Starmer, because we haven't had a chance to talk to you about this recently. What should Starmer do in the Sturgeon-Johnson showdown? Should he take a side? Should he sit it out? Should he sit in the middle? I, I think it's very difficult for the Labour Party indeed. Labour is officially a, a party of the union that doesn't seem to play well with the people who otherwise might vote Labour. Young people in Scotland seem to be swinging strongly behind independence. One thought is that it would be better if the Scottish Labour Party could signal some kind of official agnosticism on the independence question and say it's up to voters in Scotland, that might alienate the party less from the large number of pro-independence voters who see themselves on the left or on the centre-left in Scotland. On the other hand, that would cause enormous difficulties inside the Scottish Labour Party. And it would also look like a kind of abdication of responsibility insofar as this is going to be the major question facing Scotland for the foreseeable future. And it would seem extraordinary if the main UK opposition party didn't take a strong opinion on it one way or the other. So I think Starmer has a menu of bad choices. I think the Labour Party continues to be in an extraordinarily difficult position in Scotland, that they've tried leading the party from the right of the party, they've tried leading the party from the left of the party. Neither works. They're caught in this vice over independence, uh, and there isn't a plausible way forwards. So I think Starmer is best placed to sort of stay out of the way. The issue for all the parties that aren't the you know the SNP, leaving aside the the Greens in Scotland, which is effectively allied with the SNP on this issue, is that they they need to play for time and that allow some of the difficulties that the the SNP has internally, including in relation to whether it actually has a clear independence project to work themselves out, and. The question then becomes, well, for how long can Westminster say no to a referendum? Now, I think in the end, the answer is, is there will have to be another one. But the politics is really about like when it will happen and on what terms it will happen. And there obviously is some incentive, I think, for Labour to be in largely the same position um, as the Conservatives about this. But doing that without getting into all the difficulties that, that the joint campaign between Labour and the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats on the unionist side in 2014 brought about is, is pretty difficult because obviously that is part of the story of Labour's post-2014 failure in Scotland, the complete catastrophe from Labour's point of view of the, the 2015 general election. So as Chris says, I, I don't think that there's any you know, palatable answers really for Starmer. But I, I can't also see how, in terms of the medium to long-term position of Labour, he, that he can take Labour that far away from where the Conservatives go on this. I mean, can he at least, when the question is put to Johnson after May and after the Holyrood election, so say the SNP win a majority, and then Nicola Sturgeon demands a second referendum, and Johnson says no, 
is there room for Labour? Because Labour does, presumably does not want to be put in the same box as the Johnson government directly on that question. Um, and if Labour is going to have a future as the party of the union, it has got to somehow retain support in Scotland, which is going to be incredibly hard if it's associated with the straightforward no, the people of Scotland have voted and we just reject it. Is there any space for Starmer to make a case that you know the democratic voice of the people of Scotland must be heard and then to position himself as an advocate for the union on very different terms from Johnson's advocacy for the union? So the two ways in which he distances himself are not to reject the demand and then to start already crafting a different case for the union. That seems to me like the only way the Labour Party can survive this in a way. I mean, it will survive it, but the only way it can come out the other side, not damaged by it. I think on the first case, though, that is very difficult because that will be to go for a quick referendum because that will be to put the Labour Party at Westminster at odds with the Scottish um, Labour Party. And I think that, on the second issue, it, it's very difficult to see, you know, like what an alternative looks like. Anything that really goes down the road of creating um, something that looks like a more federal United Kingdom is going to have to involve questions about stronger institutions for England. And that isn't really something that's to Labour's advantage. In, in fact, it's really to Labour's disadvantage. So I'm still inclined to think that time for the SNP to weaken and, and other parties to be able to mount a challenge to the SNP about domestic issues in Scotland is the best way forward for both of the unionist parties. But Chris, what about the possibility of Labour making a social democratic case for the union, which seems to me to be the best option for Labour to distinguish itself both from the SNP and from Johnson's government? Is there not a case to be made for a kind of UK-wide form of social and political solidarity, particularly post-Brexit, that a politician like Starmer could potentially make? I mean, he's, he's a North London lawyer, as no doubt the Tories will label him throughout. But isn't there a case to be made for the Social Democratic Union? There may be, but there's a question of whether it will be heard. I mean, I think the, the difficulty with the idea that Starmer can stake out a position that's very distinctive from the government's is that either a referendum is postponed for the foreseeable future, in which case Starr will look to some extent like a bad faith actor or, I mean, people won't really believe that he wants a referendum in Scotland because Labour is very scared of the result. Or Johnson does concede a referendum, in which case people will very quickly forget the politics that led up to it. And the question will be, which side does Labour line up on in a binary referendum campaign? And it will be very difficult to stake out a third position and resist being collapsed into the politics of the broader pro-union camp. It's not as if the Labour Party has strong media outlets in Scotland that can relentlessly plug away at its own distinctive policy that we're imagining. So I think the politics will continue to be very difficult and it's true that you can you can make an argument about why social democratic politics would be easier inside a United Kingdom if it were to swing significantly to the left than it would be inside a European Union where small peripheral economies periodically have not done especially well within the structures of the broader European Union dominated by the uh, economies of 
France and above all Germany. So I think you can make a case for the social democratic union that you're describing, but I don't think that case will be heard. Um, and that continues to make the situation very, very difficult for the Labour Party in Scotland. Helen mentioned there's also a problem for Labour if it were to try and position itself as the party of devolution within the United Kingdom, so enhanced devolution, because it raises the question of English devolution, or at least English institutions. And then also the one bit of the United Kingdom where Labour is in charge in Wales. Now, there, there, there is some pretty contentious politics there and the pandemic, you know, the pandemic is going to factor into this, whatever Sturgeon is going to make a case for Scotland's handling of the pandemic. In Wales, it looked as though it was going quite well a few weeks ago. It's not going so well now. And, you know, there are vulnerabilities, I think, for Labour in Wales, their record in Wales. And so Labour you can't make the case for Scotland, can't make the case for England, maybe will struggle to make the case for Wales. Which then goes back to my original question, does that create an opportunity for anyone else? I mean, is there anyone else who can make the case for devolution? Or are we back to the only people who can actually make the case for devolution, including English devolution, are the Conservative Party? I think that the, the, the problem in some senses is even deeper than that, because your question presumes that there is a coherent case for devolution that can be made and that we could actually have some kind of version of, of federalism in which... England had something like um, the, the, the there was an English executive, a constitutionally authorised English executive and an English parliament in the way in which is the case in Scotland and to a different degree in Wales. But once you get into that territory, you really have, you know, like overwhelmed the union with Englishness. And that the, the fundamental difficulty is that the only way in which you can actually govern the United Kingdom in some kind of coherent way is without devolution with a parliamentary union and yet um, it's incredibly difficult to see how we can retreat in this country from having gone down the, the devolution road because Scottish devolution isn't going to be given up so what we're left with is finding ways of navigating around these difficulties fudging questions that don't turn out to be as destabilizing as the situation has been since the SNP won a majority in the Scottish parliamentary elections in 2011. And, and there isn't a case for an Andy Burnham-style politician within Labour, so it's not going to be English devolution, but it, you know, the case for greater devolution for the North, and again, this comes out of the pandemic, those issues are going to be raw in British politics for a long time to come. There are, within British politics now, much more prominent, within English politics, much more prominent politicians who do not speak in and for Westminster but for regional parts of, of England, could, could, under these conditions, particularly the context of a Scottish independence referendum, that case not be made? I think you can see politicians like Andy Burnham becoming very prominent in very particular circumstances, as we saw with the pandemic in the Northwest and in, in Greater Manchester and so on. But from time to time, the news cycle will shine a spotlight on these figures. They can't do much to command attention over a longer period, partly because the powers of these mayoral offices are so limited, but in particular because they don't have any abilities to raise money or to or really to spend that much money. And the absence of that kind of financial or economic clout, I think, means that there are always going to be figures dependent on the on the media, dependent on the news cycle, who will never be especially powerful figures in their own right. And I think that 
strikingly limits the abilities of these regional mayors to um, make much of a difference over the longer run. So do you both agree with me when I suggested that the most important opposition politician for the duration probably of this parliament is Nicola Sturgeon? Oh, without without doubt. And I think also, though, that the, the politics of what's happening around Nicola Sturgeon within the SNP is, is perhaps the most fluid thing that's going on in, in British politics at the moment. If and when we do get to a Brexit deal, Helen and I are going to be back with an extra episode to reflect on that. And next year, we are planning to do a series about the union, the four different component parts, their history and their possible future. In next week's episode in our regular slot, we're going to be looking back and looking forward to some of the other things coming up on Talking Politics, including in the spring, a new series of the History of Ideas. Do join us for all that. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Does that make a difference? Yes. Yes, it does. Tiny bit more. Tiny bit more. Like that? I'm almost at the top. Shall I go right to the top? No. No, go a tiny bit down because I think you might go slightly too high once you get excited about that. Uh, go to, back down to a little bit. How about that? Uh, how about that? Yeah, yeah perfect. perfect. Yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.